Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. All right, thanks, Waldine. Good morning again, everybody. Uh, welcome to Hiawatha. If you came in late, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks again for coming today. If you're family visiting for the dedication or just visiting uh, for another reason, I'm glad you guys are with us today. Um, we are, oh, you know what? I forgot a clicker. Kurt, you mind grabbing me my clicker? Caleb, thanks so much. Or you can just advance my slides the whole time. No. You don't want to do that. Um, thank you so much. Um, we're in the Gospel of John right now, as you just heard a reading from. That's our passage for today. So uh, as Waldine invited us, if you uh, want to turn in a Bible or a, a phone app uh, to um, follow along, that'd be great. I was at a conference last week, and the, the guy said, everyone turn on your Bibles. thought that was funny. <laughs> it was like, never heard that before. But uh, so, yeah, turn on your Bible if you want. Uh, but the, the passage today is from John 12, uh, 27 to 36a, uh, which is the first part of that verse. Uh, just to recap where we've been, though, uh, we're right in the pretty much smack dab middle of the Gospel of John. Uh, it's Palm Sunday, so uh, the last half of the Gospel of John deals with the last five days, essentially, of Jesus' life. And if you include his resurrection, of course, that's this, this last week, basically, uh, which we call Holy Week. Um, and so, but because of that, there is an uptick in death talk and death imagery. Uh, in a way, Jesus is uh, preparing personally for it, uh, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, you could say. Uh, but he's also helping others to prepare for it and to help reshape their understanding of what the Messiah would come to do and come to be, the, the promised one, the, the king uh, himself. What type of war he would come to fight and what type of oppression he would come to release us from. Uh, in fact, you see this literary repetition um, in John where some variation of the question, so I can go back here, um, some variation of the question there in the middle of who is this son of man has been played on repeat uh, throughout the Gospel of John. It's a question not just that's an historical question uh, that it was, but it's also for the readers. It's, it's for us to see that this is kind of the question that John is trying to, 
uh, both ask and answer. More than that, Jesus is. Uh, who is he? The Son of Man is uh, an Old Testament um, prophetic kind of reference for the Son of God, for this, uh, this king who would come uh, to crush everything, every enemy uh, and put it, put it under his feet and uh, bring it in an era of peace that would be unmatched and would last forever. Uh, Jesse talked about that a little bit last week. So, um, but who is the Son of Man? It's asked over and over again as it is in today's passage in verse 34. And so um, what I want to do today is just um, kind of walk us through this devotionally. I was reading this uh, passage this week, and um, it's not going to be that different from what I normally do, but I, I, um, it's, a, it's kind of a heavenly passage. We, I've been talking about John in these terms throughout uh, the series, I think, so far, but it is, um, as you see here in our, in our sermon series, Art, uh, it is traditionally understood as the eagle gospel, uh, it, it meaning it is heavenly, it's big picture, it's from the 30,000-foot vantage point. And so uh, John is just, he sounds different, he has kind of a different feel um, than, uh, and luster kind of, than the, the synoptic gospels that are more on the ground, uh, grounded so to speak. Uh, John is, in, John's more in the air. Uh, and they all complement, they don't contradict, it's just that John sounds a bit different. These kinds of passages that come right before his death are... Uh, sound that way. They almost sound a little bit prophetic, uh, or as I'll talk about later, almost kind of like a parable, and they take some work. And so what I was doing this week is just reading through it and um, feeling like that uh, sermons, sermons are always kind of developed differently. And so but I, th- I think this one, what I want to try to replicate is what I experienced this week and just kind of reading it devotionally, kind of walking through it and um, pulling out some things that I think questions that I was asking, but I think that the text kind of demands or kind of um, you know, beckons us to, so to speak, um, but then uh, talk about how that applies to us. But the big question, though, too, is just we're continuing to learn who is the Son of Man as it relates to his impending doom. <laughs> really, that's kind of the thing, is who is Jesus as it relates to his crucifixion, which is right around the corner, and we're seeing images of that death uh, we have been throughout the whole book. Hope you've been seeing that. Um, but especially here, just right on the threshold of um, Calvary or Golgotha or... Um, we call that just, those are words just for the, the hill of his crucifixion. So, um, so I have three kind of things that will frame this, but um, we'll kind of start from top to bottom here. The first is Jesus' self-denial. So I'm going to cheat a little bit here and go back to last week's passage for context. Uh, if you were here, Jesse um, talked about um, my passage. Is, Je- is Jesse here? Um, I don't know if Jesse's even here right now, so I'm going to uh, tease him. But he, uh, he referenced this week's passage. I'm going to go and take some from his passage. So uh, take that, Jesse. Um, but I kind of have to for context because um, it's one flow of thought. So I'm going to kind of cheat here and go back because um, it colors what's going on here with Jesus' angst. That's how it starts. Um, but it was there last week that Jesus said, uh, here on top, I wrote it out, um, that whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So very palatable teaching, right? It's not. Um, but Jesus, Jesse, Jesse did a great job uh, last week of preaching this. I'm not going to repeat it all. But if you weren't here, there is a semantic range to that idea of hate. Uh, think de-emphasize uh, rather than actual self-hate. You know, think of like self-denial or decentralizing myself or taking myself off the throne of my life. Uh, That's um, more what's meant. But uh, with that said, though, um, one thing that is worth reemphasizing as it relates to to today's passage here in verse 27 is that Jesus immediately embodies this idea himself. Uh, His soul is deeply troubled. This is actually uh, 
John's Garden of Gethsemane passage because John doesn't have one of those passages. So this is it. This serves that purpose. He is in anguish. Uh, Gethsemane is where he started like sweat blood. Do you remember that? That's how in anguish he was. Um, he's not doing that here. At least John is not saying that. But that's the type of anguish that he's starting to feel because he knows what's coming. So my soul is troubled. I'm in anguish. And yet... As opposed to asking the Father, God the Father, to save him from his crucifixion, he quote-unquote hates or decentralizes his own life unto death for the sake of others. Isn't that just amazing and beautiful? Uh, it, it's, it, it is, he's saying, it's for this purpose I have come to this hour. Uh, or, or he's saying, I will not pray for my own self-preservation. This is like, these are things like, right from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself <clears throat> that we don't always get, right, in, a, in every gospel, every passage. But this is what he's like. If you don't know what he's like or if you've forgotten, you know, Jesus is saying, I, what, what shall I say? Like, it's almost like he's talking to himself about this, right, but to the crowds as well. Should I, should I pray for deliverance from the cross? Well, no, no. The answer is no. I will not do that. I will not pray for my own deliverance, my own self-preservation. Um, I will hate my own life unto death for the sake of others that they, may, they might live. And this is important to see, I think, because for a number of reasons. Um, but because it frees us up from the impossible burden of perfect self-denial ourselves. Like when you guys hear, um, you must hate your life in order to be saved. What do you feel? It's kind of heavy, Right? And also kind of hard to measure. How do you ever know if you've done enough? If you've done it enough? Well, it's impossible. Uh, but you know, on one level, I think there's layers to this teaching. Uh, on one level, um, the call to deny ourselves and to not glory in what we've done is central to our response to the gospel because the gospel hinges on faith and our reception of God's work, uh, not our works. Um, so I would say... Um, Self-denial for Christianity is not asceticism, but humility. That's really important to understand. Like, when you understand the idea here that just self-denial in the Bible, uh, self-denial for Christianity, for other religions it's different, but for Christianity, self-denial is not asceticism. It's not fasting or self-harm or monasticism or celibacy or forced suffering. That's not what, the, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Um, Self-denial is just humility. It's just getting over ourselves. Uh, it, it's, you know, self-denial is truly believing that we bring nothing to the table before God. That's what denying the self is. Truly believing we bring nothing to the table before God. Uh, and so, that, so that's, that's one angle on this then that, that um, you could say is kind of an adjacent principle to the gospel itself. It's sort of like, um, it's what must happen in the heart by God's grace. It's what, God's, it's what God softens our heart unto in order to fully receive in humility um, the gospel of, of Christ. And yet, there, this is another angle then on this teaching, and yet there is a precedent in the gospels, the gospel accounts, for Jesus asking people to do things they cannot do. There's a precedent in the gospel accounts for Jesus asking people to do things that they just cannot do, such as be perfect as God is perfect. 
You can't do that. I, I, I don't know if you thought you could or not. And I'm, I don't mean that like in some kind of coy way. I, I mean, there's actually like perspectives on that verse that try to soften it and lower the bar of it, uh, lower the standard of it to make it possible to jump over. I think those are untrue and actually kind of harmful. Um, Jesus is saying be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect in, to, in order to bring us low, to, to make us look at the hurdle that's about 30 feet in the air um, and realize we can't do it. We, we must follow him. We must, there must be something else uh, in order to save us. Uh, or think of like the, the money-loving rich young ruler. You guys remember this story, those of you who've read it before? The money-loving rich young ruler where Jesus says, um, go and sell all you have and follow me. For a money lover, that's impossible impossible. And Jesus knows that because the question of the rich young ruler is, how can I be saved? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments, then you'll be saved, which is the wrong answer. And Jesus knows that. But the guy's answer is, well, I've kept all these rules. I've done them all. And Jesus says, ah, to help you see that you haven't, let's see, what can I tell this guy uh, that's impossible for him to do? Ah, give away everything that he owns. He loves his stuff, loves his money. You guys ever watch Shark Tank? Uh, what's the guy's name in the middle there? Kevin. He always talks about, oh, I love my money, right? That's, that's what I think about. So, uh, loves his money. I'll say that you have to give everything you own away and then follow me. And what does he do? He goes away sad because he can't. So, again, there's a precedent in the Gospels for Jesus telling, teaching us things he knows we can't do. That's just two of them. And so, I think this idea of hating our lives in one sense is similar. It's not really possible, at least perfectly. But today's passage helps us to see how Jesus does it himself for us. How it it relieves the burden of doing it ourselves perfectly. And how it's his death that actually saves us from the sin of not decentralizing ourselves, which we've all sinned. We We always do that, Christian or not. Um, so I think this, this is a passage that, that invites us to see this. Um, and just to, just to give you guys like a little bit of uh, interpretational advice here when you read this stuff. A teaching of Jesus can be an adjacent principle to the gospel, like we talked about humility and encourage humility in our hearts, and we talked about that, but also be a hurdle we can't jump over at the same time. Like both can be true. If, if you kind of minimize that, into one, I think we miss some, some of what's going on. So a teaching of Jesus can be an adjacent principle to the gospel, a principle for life or thinking or living, but also be a hurdle we can't jump over at the exact same time. And I think in this case, this is an example of one of those. And, and gospel truth, though, comes from both angles. The most important of which is that Jesus' self-denial for you is more important than your self-denial for him. Please hear that. Don't flip the importance of those around. You know, we're not far in the gospel here from Peter saying, I'll die for you, Jesus, uh, which, which should send up a bunch of red flags. Um, whenever we promise things, we, you know, uh, this is why we don't sing songs here that, you know, uh, where, where we promise things for God. Um, we don't like those songs. Uh, we'd rather sing about God promising to us and actually keeping them as we break vows. But when Peter says, I'll die for you, Jesus, and Jesus says, no, that's not how this works. Um, first of all, no, you won't. You'll deny me three times. But second, that's not the gospel. I die for you. I die for you. And so 
So Jesus' self-denial then, his death on the cross, um, is not an example to follow, but a realization that we're saved by grace, uh, which leads us to laying down our works, opening our hands, emptying them, um, and believing and saying, God, save me. I can't save myself. And this is coming full circle here. I'll say this. Um, saying, God, save me. I can't save myself is the equivalent of hating your life. That's how you hate your life. That's what he means. To say, God, save me, I can't save myself, that's the epitome of self-denial. And until we do that, we cannot have eternal life. We cannot be saved. We're too much a part of the equation. This is precisely the problem that Jesus has with the crowds and they with him. They, they don't believe that that's the principle. They, they, they're putting too much of them in part of the, and their works in the equation. So the simple prayer of, God, save me, I can't save myself, I mean, if you've prayed that prayer and you're a Christian, you have done this. It's, it's happened. Um, not that we can't still keep doing it. We do, but you've done it. And more importantly, Christ has done it for you. And, that, and, and it's his death, his self-denial that's enabled that to happen. Praise be to God. All right, let's move on to the second piece here, which is uh, the thunderous voice from heaven. Interesting part or passage. Verse 28 says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it, glorify it again. This is a really unique moment, uh, even biblically speaking. All four gospel accounts have some kind of audible voice of the Father talk to or about the Son, Jesus, but this is John's unique account of it. And what makes it so powerful is that it's an actual historical account of two persons of the Trinity talking, scheming, and resolving to bring about their own glory or fame through their own suffering. And so, if you've ever wondered about this element of Christianity, how God suffers for us, um, if, it, you know, if it was really that central, or if it was even true, and if God wanted to suffer or not, um, I would point you here, uh, among other places, but look at what God is like saying to himself or amongst himself. He, they're, they're scheming. They're resolving, they're planning on their own to save us. And so this is, all, this is all a clear indication, too, that the cross of Christ is where God gets the most glory or fame, uh, as counterintuitive as that might sound. And so although we can and should seek to bring glory to God with our praise and our selflessness and our love for his people, and the Bible says elsewhere our suffering as well brings him glory, um, in, in certain capacities, not going to go into all that today. Although those are good and, and a part of our story, true glory was handled apart from us by the Son without a speck of help from us whatsoever. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, uh, God's answer to Jesus here as a fellow human being is his answer to us as his children, which is, I've already glorified it myself. And I will glorify it again. Um, or, or think of like, I was thinking like if you pray, um, God help me to change. You know, uh, part of God's response to us is, I have changed you. I already have. I've transformed you. And I will transform you again. Or maybe the more misguided prayer of, uh, God help me to forgive myself. Uh, God responds to that, I have forgiven you. And I will forgive you again. You don't have to forgive yourself. My forgiveness is enough. It actually is sufficient. Like, it's not lacking. You don't have to fill in the gap. There's not like 10%, and that's your job. Now you've got to forgive yourself. Um, 
God says, I have forgiven you through my son, and I, and I will do it again. It's a relief. The second aspect to this voice uh, comes from verse 29, uh, is that it sounded like and was explained away as thunder by the crowds, which is interesting. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. All right, so um, let me just start with this. I, I think that it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world in context because what's really happening here is that God is speaking but people can't or are unwilling to understand. Like God is speaking and people just can't understand. That's just what we're seeing. If you were to boil it down, right, there's a thunderous voice and um, only Jesus gets it. So uh, it's a form of judgment. It's, uh, in other words, his voice didn't sound like um, you know, gentle ocean waves on the beach, you know, but thunder, which often is not a good thing, right? And I know some of you love thunderstorms, I actually do as well, but I mean, thunder uh, accompanying a storm is not a good thing a lot of times. Um, se- severe thunderstorm warnings usually send us running for our basements, in other words, right? Um, some of you guys know Aletha and I bought a new minivan in February, the first new car we've ever bought in our marriage uh, that got hail damage three months later. So <laughs> it's like, you've got to be kidding me. So now this whole summer, every time there's a rumble of thunder, I run out and run it in the garage. I'm like just triggered by, you know, every rumble of thunder now. Which, um, so anyway, all that to say, this story is almost a parable of how God is a billion miles away from us. How we're no longer in paradise with him how in a Tower of Babel kind of way, he speaks a foreign language we can't understand and how we are kept from understanding because of our sin. But that sets up the good news. The good news here in this passage is Jesus, that Jesus is there, and he's not like that. Um, The good news is that uh, it's through Jesus' lifting up, uh, as it says here in verse 32, which uh, shows by what kind of death he was going to die. So a lifting up is like a, a cruciform way of dying. It's, it's you're lifted up off the ground, you are crucified in the air. And so, um, so this is not like, it's interesting that John writes this, right? It's like we don't have to guess. Uh, the crowds are just kind of getting this as well. This is like an addition by the author, but the crowds are trying to understand this. I'll come back to that. They're understanding it. But Jesus is saying, when I'm lifted up on a cross, when I'm lifted up from the earth, it says, in other words, when I'm crucified for you, when I'm, when I'm thrust up into the air where the thunder came from, into the air close to the thunder and the lightning, it's through that event that judgment will be diverted from you uh, because I will take the judgment. I'll take the thunder and the lightning. But, but here's the good news too. If you guys have read the Bible, you know this, um, but this is a, just a a macro observation here. There is no thunder after the cross. There's no thunder after the cross. God's voice still sounds uh, thunderous sometimes. We see that in the book of Revelation and so forth, but we can understand it. And it's not a fearful thing because we, can, we have a mediator, God's son who speaks our language, who became exactly like us who himself interprets, clarifies, and erases the barrier between us and God forever. 
and who never speaks in thunderous speech himself, but gentle, lowly, intelligible words of grace. Words that draw us closer rather than send us running for the basement, uh, sheltering from the storm. That leads us to the last piece then, which is uh, don't walk in darkness. Let me read verses 34 and following to remind you what this says. Uh, The crowd answered him then, we have heard from the law or the Old Testament that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. While you walk, or walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Walk, or while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Okay, so the crowds are uh, putting two and two together here. I was alluding to this. And they're realizing that Jesus is saying the Son of Man must die. They, they know what lifting up means. They're starting to get it, at least most of them. Um, though they still don't know who he's talking about. They don't realize he's talking about himself. And so they ask him, who is this Son of Man? Um, and then comes what you might call Jesus' non-answer. Isn't it like this, like, well, he didn't really answer the question, you know? Um, or did he? Like, he is. But, like, at face value, you might be like, that's kind of a non-answer. Like, thanks for nothing, Jesus, right? Um, but he's not clear. Uh, nor does he say, I am the Son of Man. That's what I mean by not clear. Like, he could have said, I am. That's going to come later, but he doesn't say that, right? So that's part of the, um, part of what he's doing is he's, he's not revealing his identity to ensure that he'll be crucified. This is a whole bigger theme here on Time Today to go into, but part of what Jesus is, like, hush-hushness is, you ever notice that in the Gospels where he heals this guy and says, don't tell anybody? Um, or here, like, well, it's pre- the ball's teed up pretty high for you here, Jesus. Like, all you got to do is say, well, I'm the guy. Um, why? And one of the big reasons for this is because he wants to be crucified. Like, he's ensuring his rejection. Um, he's keeping himself and his identity from people so he'll be crucified as an imposter, even though he's not. All right, so that's part of it. We'll come back to that a little later in the series uh, because um, that changes right around and after the cross, but... Um, but here, he doesn't say, I am. But he does respond, though. Look what he does do. He does respond by doubling down on his impending death. So, who is the Son of Man? He starts by saying, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And now he doubles down with, he is the light and won't be here for much longer. Which is to say, he's going to die. And so there's a level of urgency to this here, too, that he turns back on the people because their response to this and to him matters, as it does for us. We're hearing this just like they did. Uh, Maybe from different sides of the cross, but the idea is the same. In the same way the darkness of Jesus' death was coming for the first audience here in the Gospel of John, so now do we have the light now but a final Hellish darkness is right around the corner for those who don't believe. And so, he says, walk in and believe in the light. And this is really the true warning of Scripture, right here. Is what are you doing with Jesus? That's the true exhortation and the true warning is what are you doing with Jesus? Do you believe in him or not? Much more than how holy your life looks. The New Testament's biggest warning, the biggest divider and demarcation point, 
the biggest litmus test, the only thing that ultimately matters is do we believe? Do we trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins? Because to become a son or daughter of light comes through what? Belief, trust, not performance. Do I believe in Jesus or not? Have I truly received the light? Have I become a son or a daughter of the light myself by simple trust, childlike faith? So I think what we can easily do sometimes with passages like this, um, and I don't know if you guys have thought in these terms before, I know I have, um, but, but I think this is a common thing. What we can easily do sometimes with passages like this is take the seemingly binary nature of the teaching, light and darkness. Got it. Makes sense. We can take that and project it onto what we do on a daily basis so that we analyze everything down to the deepest intentions of our heart and weigh them against this call to walk in the light or not walk in the darkness, which is the same thing. Am I doing more good than bad? More light than darkness? But instead, we should understand this imagery like a campfire in a dark forest. The light is with us in the darkness. Now, just like Psalm 139.12 says, Oh, he even sees me in the dark. At night, I'm immersed with the light. And so, the call is not so much to analyze how we are walking morally as much as we are staying by the fire. Are we doing that? Or are we foolishly walking off into the night in order to freeze to death? Are we walking away from Jesus? Are we staying with him? Or are, as he himself says in John 15, are we abiding with him? Do you remain with him? Are you abiding with him in what he does for you? Or and in that way, walk in the light, or are we walking away? In the middle of winter, on the North Shore, pitch black, you're going to freeze to death. That's, that's, that's the warning, that's, that's the issue here. Also in 1 John 1, 7, it says, uh, same author, but this is a letter, he says, uh, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. This is helpful too, isn't it? Like, look what he's saying about walking in the light. What's he say? If we walk in the light, is he, Jesus, is the light and is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So this is its own sermon. I'm not going to spin off on this today for time's sake, but I'll just say this. Look at what he says. To be in the light is to be with Christians. To be, with, to be in the light is defined biblically by being around other Christians because that's where he is. To have fellowship with one another. So we can't be in the light if we're not at church or I mean that broadly, not just Sunday mornings, but if we're alone, we're not in the light. doesn't mean we're like damned instantly if we're like in between churches or anything. It just means the light is with his people because he is with us. We are sons and daughters of the king, you guys. We are sons and daughters of light. He is with us, right? We are his temple. And he not only cleanses us and purifies us from sin by his blood, but he dwells with us. And so to be in the light is, um, in one sense, it's not as complicated as you think it is. It's just passively to be around Christians, 
There's more to say than that, of course. But look what the Bible says. To be in the light is to have fellowship with one another, and in that to have fellowship with the Son. All right? But I'll go back to verse 36, believe in the light. Um, that is to say the light, that the world is going to say, we get these messages a lot, that, that you are the light, that you are the light in and of yourselves. I mean, as Christians, we are the light because of Jesus, but that's different, right? The world says uh, the light comes from you. It's in us, but the Bible says the light is among us. It's outside of us. It's, um, you know, in either, so either we believe in the one who was troubled unto death, swallowed up by the darkness for us, or we are overtaken ourselves. That's really kind of the, the, the either-or nature of this. Um, you know, I, I put up here uh, Mark 15, 33. You know, there, there's a reason why the sun went out when Jesus was on the cross. Uh, so halfway through Jesus' crucifixion at high noon, uh, everything went black. And uh, as it says here, the whole land... So for three hours, uh, this occurred. There's a reason for this. Because Jesus, when he was dying as the light, he was enveloped, he was overtaken by darkness for you. So again, do you see, we talked about this before a little bit, but do you see how, again, there's this principle, there's this warning, and yet it's not just as simple as do this, but don't do this. But it's also something that Jesus took on himself. He, he was swallowed up and overtaken by this darkness when he died so that we don't have to fear. And so the final word of the gospel for you is not actually don't walk in the darkness, though that's a word of wisdom for us. That's not the final word. The final word is Jesus walked into darkness and then came out again for you and me. He did it. So now then, the, the call for us is to go and breathe all of that in. Just drink that down to the dregs. And then go and warm yourself by the fire of that good news the rest of your life. With brothers and sisters and encouragers and pastors and friends next to you all your days. That's what this is saying. And then we are in the light. Then and through that, and before that too by his grace, but in, an, in that we experience what it means to be a son or a daughter of the light because we experience his salvation. We, we experience and live out of the fact that he went to the darkness and hell for us so we don't have to fear the litmus test. It's been done. It's finished. Believe that and walk in the light. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this passage. I thank you for um, the wisdom in it uh, for the mystery in it, for the warnings, and especially for the grace, for the gospel um, that sets us free, as Scripture says elsewhere, from the law of sin and death. Thank you that um, we are saved by your actions, by your self-denial, by your quote-unquote hating of yourself unto Calvary uh, and into the tomb and then up and out again three days later. Um, Thank you that we're saved by you being enveloped and overtaken by the darkness. Um, God, I just pray for myself and everyone here. Uh, I, I, I pray for deep, deep encouragement in the gospel this week. Uh, the, the, the reality of the gospel is that there's no more thunder. There's no more running for our abasement when you come. Uh, there is 
gentleness, there's lowliness. There is God became weak so we might become strong in him. There, there is this scandal, the scandal of eternity, of uh, the Son of God himself dying and, and pursuing his own glory on his own without help from us. The gospel is, is about interpretation and bridging and gulf fixing and God coming, our, you coming our way entirely without a speck of help from us. And um, I praise you for that. That is really, really good news. But man, is that incredibly offensive for proud people, um, of which we all share in regularly, Christian or not. And so humble us, help us to self-deny, to carry our cross and self-deny uh, by praying every day and believing every day that this is entirely about you, entirely. Um, help us to open our hands and unclench our fists from our trophies uh, and things that we have thought were to our credit before you. Uh, and in that way to become low and unfamous and forgotten. Oh, but in that we have so much joy and so much to look forward to because we're loved and remembered by you. Uh, so God, build this church, grow us into full maturity, forgive us our sin, make us new, and help us this week to walk in the light in fellowship with one another. In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand and join us for one more song.